If you have your Bibles, and we hope you do, will you please turn in them to Daniel chapter 2 as we continue our look at what in the world is going on, and we're bringing some things into focus that our study of eschatology has uh, unearthed and some of the current considerations that are happening in our world today and trying to bridge the two subjects. And the title of my message this morning is A New World Order. Let us begin by reading in Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 20. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of the God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding and reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we have asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's dream. In 1990, President Bush Sr., giving a speech just after the invasion of, or I should say the resistance of Iraq as they made their way into Kuwait, believed that his actions in the Middle East would allow for the new world order to come forward under the direction of the United Nations. That speech was given on September 11th, 1990. I still remember hearing those words. I remember watching that speech. I remember the Christian community afterwards uh, preparing for the Lord's return after hearing those three words, new world order. Even to this day, those words ring in the hearts and minds of many people. For Mayor Lightfoot recently used those words in an interview that she had, and many on both sides of the subject responded, one trying to uh, downplay the words in which she used. Others were stating, once again, let us get prepared for the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But where do those words originate from? And why do those words mean anything to you and I who are Christians? What is this new world order? Well, many believe that that phrase was actually coined by the famous author H.G. Wells in a book that he wrote in 1940 called The New World Order. It was a book that he wrote describing a socialist society unified under a one-world government. I think that's very interesting and the implications of that alone. That being said, today those words still ring in the hearts and the minds of people when they hear them. Certainly in the Christian community, many ears perk up when they hear that term, the new world order. But what does it mean? Where does it come from? 
Why are we even concerned with a new world order? What, what, what is the new world order? The new world order is the designation that we have given to identify the world coming under the reign of a single government system. Not a system individually applied, but an individual government over the entire world whatever that governmental system may be. And we believe that it comes from the book of Daniel. The concept and the ideas that at the time of the return of Jesus Christ, the world will be unified under a one-world government, and that government will consist of ten nations. And all of that comes... From Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. Today the conversation has changed a little bit. And one of the words that we are not discussing enough coming to this next election is the word globalization. The word globalization should give you a moment of pause if you consider its ramifications politically and what individuals who support globalization actually want to accomplish through it. We're going to talk about that more and more, but have you noticed that when globalization is talked about by our mainstream media, it is always uh, lifted up and it's always talked about in a positive way where nationalism is always equated with Adolf Hitler and so forth. But One of the things that COVID has shown us is that we have become as a nation too dependent on other nations for our primary and base goods. When we couldn't even manufacture the masks that were needed or the ventilators that were needed without special considerations being put into place, it shows me that we have now become way too dependent on the world for our base goods. You know, if you go to Walmart, and if you do, I'll pray for you. Um, It's just, uh, that store has changed just so much. How much can you find that is actually made in America any longer? But globalization has huge implications for the health of our nation. Nationalism has huge implications for the health of our nation. And when I talk about nationalism, I'm not talking about advocating a system of Nazism like they did in Germany. I'm talking about the United States once again being self-sufficient in the products in which we need to survive as a society. I'm also talking about the ability to have pride in the nation in which you live, to be thankful for the country in which God has placed us and the history in which we have, which is not perfect. It is so messy, but any history is messy. All you have to do is read the Old Testament. But this contrast between globalism and nationalism is a huge concern for me. And again, when you talk to people about it, very few are well-versed within the subject. In fact, I looked up a pro and con chart of globalization and uh, uh, nationalism, 
And one of the pros um, for globalization was not uh, nationalization. And one of the cons for, um, you know, globalization was uh, nationalism in its place. There's so little understanding when it comes to these terms, but we saw it, didn't we? We saw our nation scramble for the most basic needs. We're going to be looking at this as we go on, but this morning I wanted to take a step back. Because introducing you to Daniel chapter 2, I initially was just going to focus in on where we get the concept of a, a one world government, a new world order, etc. But then in my devotional time with the Lord, I really felt that he wanted us today to take a moment to consider Daniel himself. Because I think he in and of himself, in the manner in which he lived for the Lord during incredibly crisis-driven time for the nation of Israel and Judah can encourage us today. Daniel is one of my heroes of the Bible. And it's not that he was better or perfect, it was the fact that he was faithful to the Lord. And in his faithfulness, the Lord showed himself strong. You know, God's not looking for perfect people. He's looking for faithful people. He's not looking for the wise. He's looking for the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And God does so because when He does work through such a person, all the glory goes to God. You can't receive any of it for yourself because you know in your heart and mind that it's truly not you. It's God. And as we begin here in chapter 2, let me introduce you to Daniel. Daniel was... 14 or 15 years old when the Babylonian Empire and the vast army in which they had came by the direction of the Lord to come and to judge the nation of Judah. For Judah had sinned greatly against the Lord and the Lord had sent prophet after prophet to them asking them to repent of their sin. And they refused to do so. And as a result, God then kept his word and sent in an army from the north, the Babylonians, to come and to remove the people from the nation of Judah, take them into captivity, into the land of Babylon. And as a result, they were there then to stay 70 years, the prescribed amount of time in which God... uh, stated that they would be judged for. At that time, Daniel was 14 years old. And obviously it is safe to say that his whole world was turned upside down. The home in which he knew, the city in which he knew, the land in which he knew, the heritage that they had in the Lord, all now was being challenged by the judgment of God against them. And Daniel and his three friends were taken by the Babylonian army and specifically brought to Babylon for the purpose of becoming counselors to King Nebuchadnezzar, for they were wise and they were good-looking young men and they had all of the qualities, intellectual and physical, that the king would want and desire 
to place them as counselors around him. So the first thing that needed to happen is that Daniel and his three friends needed to be assimilated into the Babylonian culture. And this was a common practice of the, of the Babylonian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Medes and the Persia. They would take the best of the best of the societies in which they captured, and then they would assimilate them into their uh, culture, like the Borg from Star Trek. Um, and, you know, resistance is futile. And therefore benefit from the wisdom that they would bring to the table as they learned about the vast cultures in which they just uh, conquered and specifically learn how to rule them with minimal, you know, resistance or rebellion from those cultures in which they had conquered. So, like the other nations in whom Babylon had captured, now it came to the nation of Judah. They took the best and prime people, Daniel being one of them and his three friends that we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they began to be assimilated into the nation by first having their names changed, then being indoctrinated with the culture of Babylon and the plethora of pagan gods that surrounded the city, down to even the food in which they ate. And Daniel resisted. And he asked that they simply be given a diet of vegetables, things that were uh, kosher, if you like to use that word, for the Jewish people to eat. And then Daniel said, you'd be the judge if we are not better off after 10 days than those who are eating of the king's delicacies, then we too will eat of them. But if we are better, then let us continue to do so. And this was the beginning of Daniel's resistance to the assimilation into the culture. And God met them there. And they were, of course, healthier than all of the other counselors, wise men, satraps, and so forth. King Nebuchadnezzar had come to a point in his reign where the Babylonian Empire was so vast, he wondered how long his reign would continue. It appears that he began to contemplate how long can the Babylonian Empire stay in place? How long can we function as a world-dominating empire? What will precede us in the, uh, succeed us in the future, excuse me, uh, and so forth. And as a result, he became burdened by a continuous dream that he would have over and over and over again. And we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 2. Now, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had, notice the plural, dreams. In the Hebrew, it's the word dreams, but it means the same dream over and over and over again. Have you ever had one of those? I, I seem to have them quite often. You know, I am 52 years old. I've been out of high school for, well, let's just say uh, since... Um, the dawn of man, no, um, over 30 years. And you know, I still have the same recurring dream that I haven't completed my homework and I'm going to be late to class the next day. And I, I don't know why that still takes place. Uh, maybe it's just because it happens so often in my high school career, but I still have that same dream over and over again. 
But Nebuchadnezzar obviously had more uh, pressing matters upon him. So he had a dream over and over again. And as a result of the dream, look at what he says. He says, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Certainly, often when we contemplate the future, it is a great source of anxiety for many. Today, I think we see that heightened tenfold. Many don't know what the new normal is going to look like. We're getting a picture of it, aren't we? We're getting the understanding that not only will we have police, but we'll have mask police going forward. The future looks very uncertain. So much hangs in the balance of this upcoming election for so many, doesn't it? You see the viciousness that is taking place on both sides of the argument. And you realize that there is something consequential that hangs in the balance for the future of our nation. Many who contemplate the future grow very anxious, especially those who do not have the Lord. For me, I've walked with the Lord long enough to know that this world is the worst it's ever going to get for me. If I were to die, I'd be with Him for all eternity. And of course, as Paul said, it's only going to get better. But I do care about the people around me. I care about my loved ones who don't know the Lord. I care about my children. If the Lord chooses to tear my child. I say that all the time and then Autumn calls and says, Who else uh, is there? Uh, You know, you you said that before. Is there something I should know? Uh, Well, honey, they didn't behave and they're with the Lord now. So um, I've said that two or three times and Autumn calls from college as she she watches and says, children, plural, you know. But, um, you know, when Autumn would get into a fight, we'd get a little concerned because it was only her. No. Um, (laughs) But having a child and knowing that she desires to have children in a family one day herself, or if you have been blessed to have grandchildren, you understand that the future is going to be theirs to, ne- to negotiate and to navigate. And we haven't done such a good job at providing a better future for our kids when it comes to the health of our society, right? Our debt alone is an is a enormous issue. Nebuchadnezzar fretted the future. And he had a dream, a reoccurring dream. It doesn't state where the dream originated from, but I venture to say that it was God who gave him this dream to allow for this encounter with Daniel to proceed. But let us understand that if we truly want to know and understand the future, we have to consult someone who knows and understands the future, right? And the only one who has that ability is God. Because he sees all things at the same time, past, present, and future. As we like to say from his perspective, he's like watching the uh, Thanksgiving Day parade, you know, from the top of the Sears Tower. And seeing it in its entirety, he sees the past, the beginning of the parade, he sees the middle of the parade from that perspective, and he also sees the end of that parade. So it is with God when it comes to the timeline of human history. He sees all things at one time. And that's enough to chew on just that this morning. But he promises to give us wisdom and understanding if we ask. 
When it comes to the future, the one that I will consult is God. And as a result, that's where I need, we need to direct our attention to. Because we know that even, it doesn't matter what individual gets into the White House, God is still ultimately in control of the destination and the destiny of this nation. So in verse 2, the king gave command to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers, the Chaldeans. These were others that they had conquered and brought into the fold and tried to uh, glean from their wisdom also to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. So King Nebuchadnezzar would do whatever anyone would do in a secular society. They'd go to the quote-unquote experts of the society. For wisdom, understanding, and guidance in the affairs of the future. To plan and to proceed properly. And in verse 3, And the king said to them, I have had a dream. Now notice, now it's in the singular. And my spirit is anxious. I mean, I'm being torn up inside to know the dream. Meaning that the dream is something that is reoccurring so often that it is of necessity that I know what the dream means. That's what he's saying here. This is something that's plaguing me. It's keeping me up at night. And so then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. O king, live forever and tell your servants the dream and we will give the interpretation. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. I'm going to kill you and burn your house down. That's what you call motivational incentive. You want to incentivize your workers? <laughs> this is the way the king chose to do so. But notice, he understood that the interpretation alone could be fraudulent. He understood that it could be um, wrong. So to verify its authenticity, he demanded that not only they give him the interpretation, but more importantly, tell him what that dream actually was. Now, some believe that Nebuchadnezzar forgot. And so, oh, can you remind, I, I've had this dream, it's kept me up every single night for the past week, but I've forgotten it. Can you now please remind me of what my dream was and also, uh, if you wouldn't mind, telling me what it means. Uh, I think that's very unlikely, don't you? I think more or less he wanted the authenticity of the interpretation based on a supernatural understanding of what the dream was, and therefore he could, validif- um, he could validate their answer to him. Because each and every one of these individuals claimed to practice some type of supernatural power. And it is interesting that in the wake of all of this, we are going to see that the experts had come to their limitations. They couldn't do it. Just like the magicians who challenged Moses in Egypt couldn't do it. Or the individuals who were uh, meant to interpret the dream of Pharaoh in Genesis chapter 41 
came to the limitations of their expertise and didn't know how to answer. But this was so important to Nebuchadnezzar that he absolutely demanded that they make known the dream to him. However, verse 6, notice what he says, If you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. I love when God sets up his people, don't you? You know what's coming, don't you? They're all going to fail, and here comes this young man who, is, uh, who loves the Lord and is going to show the Lord strong. And in verse 7, they answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will give its interpretation. And the king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time, because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till... The time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know what, uh, that you can give me its interpretation. Notice that. Very interesting to me. I didn't, I've read Daniel, I don't know how many times. But the king says to them, Now if I give you this time, you will conspire against me, and you will come and mani- try to manipulate me through the interpretation. Didn't even trust his own experts here. Very interesting. But they had surely come to their limits. They are showing their incapability. And of course, like most experts that I have met in various subjects, the three words that they refuse to utter at any time throughout the course of the history of their life is, I don't know. Especially when your life is on the line, correct? I'm going to kill you and burn your house down. Very interesting. We have to understand that our world today, as we continuously push God out of, its, out of our picture and out of our mind and out of our conscience, socially, publicly, there's only one source of information then yet to consult left. And that is the experts. The experts. But experts can be wrong, can't they? And there's nothing wrong with an expert being wrong except their pride often doesn't allow them to admit that. And certainly COVID, we have seen, understandably, that when the virus first came, the experts reacted to it, but didn't really understand the virus. So I would give a lot of uh, leeway and understanding and grace to them. Because we're all learning it together. And even though they're experts in their fields and they have similar viruses that they may be able to uh, compare it to, it still wasn't exactly the same and they wanted to be sure. I get that. I understand that. What I don't understand is that as time then progressed and we, re- we learned more and more and more and more and more and more about the virus, the experts didn't seem to receive that new information very well and wanted to keep us on a course that looked more political than scientific, didn't it? 
Is it odd to you that we're the only nation in the world that our president, you know, has a mild case, he survives, he goes to the hospital, he comes out, and now the doctors are saying that he's contagion-free, he can't infect other people, and people are mad about it. I I don't understand that. I, I don't wish the COVID virus upon anybody. But two things that we have seen here is that experts can be wrong. And I think what our society is now coming to is that point where they are beginning to understand that the experts don't have all the information that they need. Unfortunately, many, not all of course, are unwilling to admit that. But I do think that like this scenario that Daniel finds himself in, if the experts of the society can't provide the information necessary concerning the future and so forth, then there's only one group of people left that can. The people who follow the same God that Daniel followed. And I believe that God may be setting us up for a dynamic opportunity. Now, we may not know all the ins and outs, and we won't become virologists and, and understand every nuances of the particular issue, but we can have certainty in our future as believers in Jesus Christ, can't we? And that is incredibly reassuring. In verse 10, the Chaldeans answered and said to the king, There is not a man on earth that can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such a thing of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. When God sets up his people for an incredible uh, intervention, it's like setting up that perfect volleyball serve to be spiked on the other side. There isn't a man on earth, not one, And no king or lord would ever think of asking their wise men, sorcerers and astrologers, to give them the dream and the interpretation of the dream. That just isn't standard practice, you know. There isn't a man on earth that can do that. Oh, yeah? Really? What does God have to say about that? Do you see how I get fired up? This is me and my devotions. It's like I'm watching like a, you know, a, a great you know, superhero before me. I guess God's doing all this stuff. I'm like, yes. Here we go. Verse 11. It is a difficult thing. No, it's an impossible thing that the king requests. And there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whom dwelling is not with flesh. Oh, the gods may know, but we mere men, we don't know. And obviously, their gods had no desire of telling them what it meant because they couldn't, obviously. For this reason, the king was angry and very furious and gave command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Execute the experts. (laughs) I shouldn't have laughed there. Um, So the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then, with counsel and wisdom, Daniel asked Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon, 
And he answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is this decree from the king so urgent or so harsh? What's happening? What has taken place? I wasn't invited into this, you know, round table uh, meeting. I wasn't invited to be part of this task force. What exactly is taking place before us? Why is this so urgent? Why is this so harsh? Then Arach made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he may tell the king the interpretation, obviously in conjunction with the dream itself. Daniel saw an opportunity before him. It is interesting that Daniel has been taken from his home, his city, his land. He's a captive in the Babylonian Empire. They're now in Babylon. And he has an opportunity. He could have said, well, you know, the wise men are going to get what they're going to get. They couldn't do as the king asked, let them all die, and so be it, and let God sort them out. Yet Daniel saw this as an opportunity. And he will ask the king for time to give the interpretation, but in doing so, the decree therefore stopped also. And the wise men of these other cultures were spared that execution. I think that we need to regain sensitivity for people who disagree with us. I think that we need to be civil because whoever is elected into office coming November 3rd or December 3rd or January 3rd or February 3rd, whenever we finally originally find out, guess what? We're still going to be Christians, aren't we? And we still need to take advantage of open doors before us. And I'm gravely concerned that some of the bantering and going back and forth over issues that are really issues that maybe we need to consider if they're hills worth dying on as Christians are limiting and closing doors of opportunity unnecessarily. It's something for you to pray about specifically. There are certainly battles that we have to fight. But on other fronts, I think there are battles that we can be silent on for now because we know that they're going to be rectified one way or another. But Daniel was appeared, he was concerned with others. And I found that in this last six months, doors of opportunity have opened exponentially during this crisis. People are very fearful, aren't they, today? They're fearful of the virus. They're fearful of the election. They're fearful of the future of our nation. And the only remedy for that fear is our Lord and Savior. The only remedy is God's Word and the, and the assurity that He gives us through His promises and the Spirit that we possess, the Holy Spirit, who imparts to us the peace that surpasses all understanding. I'm going through this this morning with you as I was going through it in my devotional time. And I found Daniel to be exceptionally encouraging to me. If he did it, we can do it, right? If he did it, removed from his land and found himself in a foreign nation at 14 years of age, we can do it today, can't we? Be the men and women God has called us to be. And so, 
verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house. And he made this decision known to his companions, which here have their Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. Those are the Babylonian names given to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his companions. He went to his friends. He went to people who had the same God that he did. He went to his countrymen. And he did so, notice in verse 18, that they might seek mercies from God, from the God of heaven, concerning the secret. You know what they did? They didn't panic. They had a prayer meeting. We're going to pray now. I challenge you, for every minute that you spend on social media, will you take two minutes to pray? For every minute that we as believers spend on social media, let's take two minutes to pray. So if I spend five minutes on social media, let's spend ten minutes in prayer. And I believe that will change not only our nation, but us. They went to prayer, not as the last resort, but the first option. They knew that the task before them was an impossibility, that the limitations of man kept them from understanding the dream, and let alone its interpretation, the proper interpretation. So Daniel did what only Daniel could do, and that is go to the God of heaven, Jehovah, Yahweh. So, they seek the mercies from God of heaven concerning the secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish, and notice this extension, with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. If Daniel wrote this, he obviously was concerned about their lives also. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Why is it that we are so reluctant to pray? Is it, a, is it because we're afraid that God won't answer or that God won't answer the way we want him to answer? Why is it that we are so reluctant to pray as an individual, as a church, as a Christian? More and more surveys taken concerning the body of Christ here in America shows a steep decline of time spent in the Word and time spent in prayer. My wife and I have met Christian after Christian who are so fearful of the COVID virus, that they can't function in life anymore. These are individuals who embrace Christ. And I don't think it's wrong to be cautious and precautious. I don't think it's wrong to take common say, uh, sense, even though it's a very debatable term today, common sense steps in protecting ourselves. But does God really want us so fearful that we can't function any longer? Is it something that we are to be so fearful of that we no longer interact with others, that we hide, that we uh, try to avoid contact with anybody and everybody, you know? People are coming up for new ways of trick-or-treating, you know, shooting the candy from a gun from their porch onto the kid's basket and the sidewalk and... 
And yet, again, the statistics tell us, and we've learned so much about the virus, that that fear isn't warranted any longer. Yes, unfortunately, people have died of this virus, and it's a tragedy. But I don't think we are doing our society nor ourselves any good by cowering in the corner due to it. I don't think it helps. And let me ask you a question. Does it show and demonstrate your confidence in your God during a time where things are so bleak and dark that we should be shining like LED light bulbs in the darkness? Something for you to consider. So Daniel is given the reveal. And he praises God in his, for doing so. Look at verse 20. We'll wrap up with this for today. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of our God forever and ever. For wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons, meaning that all history, the present and the future, are under God's sovereign control. That's what that means. For he removes kings and raises up kings, ultimately. It is God who places the rulers of various lands in various places at various times. God will sometimes give a nation what they need, And sometimes, unfortunately, he gives a nation what they deserve. If you read the kings, you notice often that as the people's hearts grew wicked towards the Lord, he would give them a king to uh, give further credence to that wickedness, and then he would bring about judgment and then raise up a king whose heart was after God. But it is God who's ultimately in control. It is God who will seat the next president in the Oval Office. We should still do our parts. We should still make arguments for why we are voting the way we vote. But ultimately, God is going to do what God is going to do. I am vastly convinced that God has more information on the United States of America than I do. And I'm also vastly convinced that God knows exactly what America needs that would benefit her the most, for example, a revival to take place. So God is going to bring about those circumstances to bring about His perfect will. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. The word understanding there is an interesting word in the Hebrew, It is a word that is used of an individual willing to consult God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Notice that the pagan officials, they knew that only their gods could reveal the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, but at no time appear to approach and petition their gods for that wisdom. But we, on the other hand, as believers and followers of God... We have the assurance that if we go to Him for wisdom, wisdom will be given to us freely, won't it? But notice this promise that they had in the Old Testament that's found in Isaiah 41, 21 through 23. Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth 
strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things of what, of, of what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them or declare to us the things yet to come. Show us the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's, yes, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and see it together. Meaning that if you are capable of doing what you're doing, let you go to those gods that you follow. The God of this world is not going to reveal to the experts of this world because they won't consult him. The experts of this world are going to rely on the human wisdom that they have obtained. And we know how limited human wisdom actually is, don't we? God clearly says that the wisdom of this world is mere foolishness unto him. Daniel did what only Daniel could do, and that is he went to God in prayer during the time of crisis that he faced. He knew what was on the line. He knew that only God could give him the answer in which he sought. What he did not know is if God would, right? And what did God do? He did. If we are slow to pray due to the fact that we aren't convinced that God wants to answer us, let me say to you unequivocally, God wants to answer you today. It may not be the answer you're looking for. It may be yes, no, or that one that is so difficult to contend with, wait. But God wants to answer our prayers. I thought we spent, should spend this time together in this first chapter of Daniel because I think that before we look at the dream and the interpretation of the dream and all that it means for our current situation today, we at this point needed to be reminded that God is setting us up for a time like no other. Not to fail, but to further His kingdom. To be a light in the darkness. To have answers that no one else has. To be able to give hope to a hopeless world. Show security in an insecure world. And show and demonstrate that our God is strong and living and knows the end from the beginning and nothing is going to thwart His plans. I felt that it was time that we once again reminded ourselves, let's just fall into the hands of God and trust Him. As Warren Worsby said, he says, the God of heaven is also the God of history. For we can set and change the times allotted to rulers and nations which was the very thing Nebuchadnezzar was worried about. It's all in God's hands, he's saying. Nebuchadnezzar was trying to hold on to things as they were because he was in power, he was in authority, but he realized his own personal limitations. You know, some of us are afraid of change just for the sake of change. We want the status quo. But I think the status quo is not going to be the backdrop in which God works in going forward. I think it is going to be something different, something new. Notice what Worsby says, and I'd like to leave you with this this morning. The psalmist said, Call upon me in the day of trouble, 
that is God petitioning us, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Psalm 50, 15. Notice what A.W. Tozer said. Whatever God can do, faith can do, said Tozer. And whatever faith can do, prayer can do when it is offered in faith. An invitation to to prayer is, therefore, an invitation to an omnipotence. For prayer engages the omnipotent God and brings Him into our human affairs. When we come to our limits, there's only one place for us to go, and that is God. I thought that was necessary to hear this morning before we get into anything else.